You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy. Today, our guest is Paul Roberts. Paul and I have known each other for about 30 plus years. He was a camper of mine in Camp Hess Kramer in Malibu growing up. Paul went on to Boston University and did work at UCLA. Mostly he did statistical analysis. He was working with the stadium announcer at UCLA track and field, and he did stats for UCLA basketball and football for about 25 years. Paul works with C-level executives as a consultant today having started his career in the family business, Vernon Industrial Supply, where he did everything you can in a small business environment. We'll learn more about that from Paul. Welcome, Paul. Hey, how you doing today, Gary? Nice to Fine. see you. Fine. It's great to have you on my show. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and where you went to college, and we'll kind of go from there. Fantastic. Happy to. Grew up in West Los Angeles, California. You had a great upbringing. Went to school at Boston University was thinking about becoming an accountant until I ran into a burned out accounting professor and decided that accounting wasn't for me, but I loved numbers. So I got a degree in uh, management information systems, it was called at the time. I like to talk about things like the wireless office and all those uh, wonderful, wonderful details. And uh, got my degree at Boston University, went to work for uh, the LA Olympic Committee for a fantastic, I would say eight weeks then went into the family business. I'd say eight weeks probably felt like a year at that time, right? <laughs> Actually, it was, it was, it went very quickly. I had done some work uh, for them, you know, previous to the Olympics in the summer. It was, it was actually a lot of fun. Traffic was very light. You know, everybody left town. It was, it was terrific. And, and if, if you know Los Angeles, LA traffic can be a, an incredible challenge. But uh, it was great. I could get I could get downtown from West LA in twenty minutes. And that was before Waze, you know. That's that, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Now you always were into you always were into sports, weren't you? And 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 that sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. For thirty years uh, with uh, my partner Rich Perlman, I was the uh, statistician for UCLA football. We also did uh, basketball games, volleyball. Track and field, I announced track and field off and on at Home Depot Center, which was uh, in Carson, California, where the Galaxy play, and Mount Mount San Antonio College, UCLA, USC, you name it, I was there. Well, back when you were still a student, I think, I worked for Rich Perlman at UCLA Track Meets. Absolutely. We were part of the infield crew that had the walkie-talkies, and we told the stadium announcer where everybody was. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It was a so fun I, time. It was fun very time. enjoyable. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, tell us, what was the family business that you were in? We were in the wholesale janitorial and food service supply industry. It evolved actually uh, the family business out of the laundry business. We were doing laundry work for industrial uh, laundry work for meat packers and gas stations and various other businesses. And one day in the 60s, uh, my father and his brother decided to sell some toilet paper off the bottom of the truck and, you know, paper paper windshield towels. 
uh, those blue towels that you used to be able to get at the gas station. So it was it was a great pivot, and they looked at the economy and decided that laundry business was not improving on their on their cost and profitability, but they could make more money selling janitorial and food service supplies. That's how it started, and it was a run of almost uh, thirty years for the family business that I was at when I was part of it. We sold the business in in the mid twenty tens, and uh, I went to work for the guy that uh, that bought the business. And uh, it, you know, had a great had a great three years. We actually tripled our volume. It was uh, really very a uh, uh, great experience. And what did you learn from the business? You... I would say that what I really learned is about attention to detail. You know, always being good with numbers. I was able to you know really you know dive into you know things about you know, product and profitability. And uh, as I went through. Uh, and learn more and more and and did a lot more networking i found out that you know it's while while doing the business is great you know there's always an opportunity to do uh, other things with the, with the business to get uh, make other connections and to really uh, not only improve your business standing and reputation but improve yourself and it was it was more about selling at a price point or was it more about building a relationship with clients customers I always felt that it was more important to to create a relationship with a customer. You know, if I couldn't make a sale to somebody, I wanted to be able to make a friend to get them the information that they needed, whether that be from a, you know a manufacturer I didn't do business with or with a, even with a competitor. It was better for me because that way they knew they could come back to me as a source of information and have other opportunities to sell. So selling was really not the be all to end all. Now, in the in the family business, were you part of the whole uh, business, including obtaining products from other vendors or just selling? Uh, what what role did you play, or what roles did you play in the business? I would say that I was, in terms of actual job duties, I was involved in virtually every aspect. When I started in the business after leaving the Olympics in Los Angeles, uh, I went through and started to want to computerize the business so that we could get a better handle on inventory. And have a have a better understanding of pricing and price, you know, and, and pricing availability versus uh, uh, the market. And eventually built a system with you know websites and you know some some minor minor social media in that in that space and time. But I was involved in everything from finance to logistics to warehousing to procurement to marketing. You know, you name it, I had a I had a hand in it. Sales, customer service. You know, I had my own set of customers as well. And when the business sold, you stayed on for a few years. That probably was a little different than working for the family. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there were there were a lot of similarities, but there were, were a lot of differences. And uh, it was uh, it was very really a, a good challenge because you're working in a different dynamic with different people. We changed our ERP system. Uh, so, you know, it, it matched up with the, uh, the owner's ERP system and it really created some very interesting, uh, interesting dynamics, which, you know, is, was a good learning experience. And I expanded the breadth of my product knowledge tremendously. And then after the family business, what'd you do then? When a little consulting, I I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, after that, I went to work at a uh, private family office and had some very unique opportunities to meet people in in a multitude of various industries uh, in banking in fashion 
and in some of you know some medical device industries, and it really you know kind of re-energized me. Um, I really found that after uh, you know being in the business for so long, I had become complacent, and that complacency was a uh, was a problem because I just you know you go through the motions and you're just used to doing what you're doing, and there was you know I wasn't looking for new opportunities. I wasn't looking for new markets to get into, you know, and, and, you know, doing the things that, you know, uh, my father had chosen to do when he left the laundry business and went to work in the, you know, went to work in janitorial and food service. So it gave me a, a great understanding that you needed to be agile. You needed to be able to pivot and you needed to be able to, you know, work within, you know, the confines of, what you were learning and what you were able to give as part of that opportunity. Now, in the family office, did you do investments and help find investments for the family office? Or did you do philanthropy? How did, what was involved there? I was doing some some philanthropy work. Um, this was a uh, an office where uh, you know this is a, a private owner um, had his own had his own funding, and he was doing some philanthropy work. But we were also looking to uh, do seed and uh, Series A funding. I spent most of my time working with the uh, prospective clients, working on business plans and trying to map out a uh, strategy for success. And when you tried to do that strategy for success or long-term strategic planning for companies, uh, did you enjoy that kind of work? What was the benefits for you? Very, very much so. I mean, it really, it really re-energized my interest in really getting involved in a company's uh, organizational structure and looking at the operations of the organization and really trying to dig deep and you know get you know get your hands dirty, if you will, and make it so that you really understood where the business was going, where they were at the present time, and kind of looking at a past, present, and future. And really being able to uh, uh, figure out where this company could go if they made certain certain changes. Sometimes the you know, changes were 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 big uh, opportunities. Sometimes it were just little tweaks. But given the dynamics of a lot of these situations, uh, it was just a, a, a really enjoyable and much more fulfilling experience that I hadn't felt in the last in the last few years in the industry. And now a moment for one of our sponsors. Jorgensen HR believes that the employer's workforce is the single key to customer satisfaction, reputation, growth, profitability, and the ultimate success of the company. Jorgensen works to ensure that employees are engaged, well-trained, and led by owners and management that are passionate about the success of their company and its employees. Jorgensen HR provides outsourced HR on an interim or permanent basis, they provide an audit of the company's HR policies, including work plans, procedures, and compliance with labor laws. They provide affirmative action audits for companies that are required by law to have an annual report. They handle workplace investigations for harassment and discrimination among their HR solutions. Jorgensen HR, results-oriented, driven by passion, guided by expertise. Jorgensen can be reached at jorgensenhr.com. J O R G E N S E N H R dot com. This past year, I had a client that was a privately owned company, and we helped them with a CEO transition plan, 
mm -hmm. where the CEO was there for 40 years, was in their 70s and getting ready to retire. Uh, a woman in business, so that was very, very rewarding to, to see how she had built her company up over the last 40 years, but also the transition to new leadership and new management. And the, the internal candidate was the one that got chosen to be the new CEO. So there was some uh, a lot of continuity, but a lot of fresh ideas. And the hardest thing for the owner was to see someone else take on the responsibility and take on the fresh ideas. No, it's a, uh, it, it, when you're looking at that type of dynamic and you're trying to uh, broaden the ideas that uh, come to the table, you know, uh, where, you know, in the, you know, in the middle of 1990s, every business in, the, in, in an organization, small, medium or large, had a website. Most of them were just static websites. Today, you have to have a website that can be interactive, that can draw people in and, you know, combined with social media. And if you're selling a product or a service and you can have people engage online, uh, you actually draw the conversation from where the customer wants to be engaged, as opposed to, you know, back in the day, if you will, where, you know, we had a person go out to see a customer or there was a phone or a fax or an e just an email and that took care of everything. Right, right. So, What do you think Zoom has done for the business world in the last couple of years? I think that Zoom has been a very valuable tool it's a bit overused. It is, uh, I think, from a communication standpoint, it's it's it is better. It's better than nothing, especially if you can't get in in front of a person. And I think that's a very valuable a valuable thing because you know emails emails and texts and you know social media quotes don't have any tone necessarily. You know you can't you can't necessarily give the tone on what you want to say in two hundred and forty characters. Right. So it, it, it's a great opportunity to communicate. It's a great opportunity to learn about what's happening in the world or what's happening in your, you know, your, favorite, your favorite pastime, but it is not necessarily the best way to, uh, to engage. And you do get some, at least, you, know, you can read people's facial expressions. What you do miss though, is you do miss the, the, you know, the body you know, how people are reacting, you know, because you look at somebody's body language, right, when you're, when you're right in front of them, and you can't really do, you can't always do that on Zoom, I, you, you see me from the, you know, the, the, the upper chest up, so, you know, I can be, you know, I can be twiddling my thumbs or, or wringing my hands, be, you know, below the, below the uh, camera, and you'd never know the difference. Well, I'm an avid poker player, tournament poker, and oh, sure. anybody that says online poker is similar is totally wrong, because, being in person with in front of people and seeing how they react and how they move, yep. what that reaction is, 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 is always an interesting thing. You know, in business, I used to say in the, when you took negotiation classes or strategies of negotiation, you know, always negotiate on your home front. So you have control over the environment. And I'm saying to mm -hmm. myself, well, I know that's the rule, but if I go to someone else's environment, then they think they have control over me, but they don't because I know what I'm doing, you know, kind of thing. Right. So it's a, interesting kind of challenge about that relationship building and the solving problems. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Lloyd Burkett Insurance Agency, founded in 1946, provides businesses and nonprofits with insurance services throughout California and the country. They provide business and commercial, personal insurance, workers' comp, and benefits. They specialize in churches and synagogues, 
in the nonprofit world, and they handle businesses of all sizes. Thank you, Jeff Burkett, president of Lloyd Burkett Insurance Agency, for sponsoring our podcast, The Road to Philanthropy. www.burkettinsurance.com. That's B-E-R-K-E-T-T, insurance.com. Tell me a little bit about your philanthropic interests over the, over the while. I've spent a lot of years working with the Wills Boulevard Temple Camps. I was on the camp commission and camp committee for a number of years and really got involved in, in the later years on, on you know, some of the day-to-day operations you know, before, before the unfortunate fire in 2018. I had also uh, been a member and acted as treasurer for a number of organizations like the Beverly Hills Education Foundation, which was very rewarding because we were supplementing programs for the Beverly Hills Unified School District that the school district could not afford to uh, take on, uh, which was uh, which was a lot of fun. And I had two stints as treasurer there. And currently, I am working in operations and finance for a relatively new organization called the uh, CoLab Youth uh, Workforce and Career Development Program. Uh, this is a program that was born out of the uh, Boys and Girls Clubs Alliance of Southern California and has just recently, as of the first of the year, become independent. Uh, they have a significant grant from, from Wells Fargo Bank. And uh, they are working to teach students in the, between the ages of 14 and 18 the importance of starting to think about uh, what they're going to do for their careers and how to save money and how to you know, really engage in something that is going to be a, you know, a wonderful, exciting opportunity in their future years uh, after they go to college. What areas do the, does the CoLab serve? Colabs currently is serving the Southern California community. They still have uh, alliance with the uh, uh, boys and girls, uh, many of the boys and girls clubs in Southern California that are uh, bringing students into their uh, program. They run uh, master classes uh, with top, you know, very, very high, high end top notch people. They have opportunities for mentoring in every different careers that, uh, you know, these uh uh, students are interested in uh, anything from entertainment to medical to cybersecurity, and they are also uh, involved with a number of school districts and other nonprofits, bringing students in to uh, enhance their their learning opportunities. They said they have a, a large grant from Wells Fargo Bank. I happen to know that was right around a million dollars. That was a pretty good grant that yep. they, that they received. Is Wells Fargo involved in the operation at all, or they were just a funder? They are involved. They've been a, a great supporter of uh, the program. They've actually uh, brought a number of their people in to be uh, masterclass presenters and uh, mentors for uh, the students. They are joining our board, the advisory board, uh, and I believe will have a you know a very positive, significant impact. Uh, we're actually discussing with them right now opportunities on, you know, kids checking accounts and really about financial literacy not only for the students that are, are just learning about things, but also to help their parents and to really help them reinvest in the communities that they are living in. Because a number of the students that are part of the CoLab program are in underserved communities and underrepresented communities, which need all of this significant help. One of the things that uh, I was uh, speaking to someone recently who was involved in the West Valley Economic Alliance 
in the valley, and they've also done some uh, service to underprivileged or disadvantaged neighborhoods, where they're helping women start their own businesses and 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 develop their own careers rather than having to take you know five dollar well no one's making a five dollar an hour job in California that's yeah. kind of Mississippi and Florida but you know low low wage paying jobs aren't going to get them ahead in life and uh, right the training of people very yeah. very important absolutely and we're we are we meaning collab is a registered uh, pre-apprenticeship program uh, with the state of California so we create opportunities. And uh, for instance, we've had a couple of our students have been involved in cybersecurity training. Mm -hmm. So they can get our pre-apprenticeship uh, pre training, go into the next class, which is apprenticeship training. And this uh, helps them as, you know, to be a feeder into the next stage, which is, you know, workforce empowerment that organizations like the LA Area Chamber of Commerce do. So it really creates that stepping stone where they, and they, they eventually come back become, you know, not only just alumni of the program, but also become mentors for students and help pay it back and pay it forward. So talking about mentors for a moment, uh, pretty much important in people's lives. Uh, who were uh, good mentors for you in your life uh, growing up? Uh, well, I mentioned him earlier. Rich Perlman has, uh, was a great mentor of mine. He was the man that I went to work for at uh, the LA Olympics. And uh, we have been lifelong friends. Uh, the amount of learning and opportunities that he gave me have allowed me to, you know, really pay it forward, not only to my children, but, you know, people in the, you know, in their age groups and younger. You know, he has always been an advocate for helping people, helping people to help themselves. I would say another mentor was a, another uh, gentleman I worked for at the LA Olympic Committee. Uh, his name was Bruce Dworshak. Bruce gave me the confidence to understand that my work was good and I, you know, I didn't have to come back and check with them every five minutes, you know, and that's, that was, that's one of the great lessons that a lot of people don't necessarily learn. You know, they get, you know, if some work in progress and they get shot down or they say, well, I'm just not going to try it, you know, and right. they'll, they'll, they'll back off or they'll quit, you know, but, you know, understanding that, you know, you are trying to develop your, and giving me the confidence to say, learn those skills and get better at what you're doing. And you'll, you'll go far. And it's uh, I always had the philosophy of hire the best people you can and trust them to do the work they've been hired to do, be there to assist them and help them if they have questions, but no micromanaging on my front, you know, I've never been right. like that. Right. And I hate being micromanaged myself, so it's uh, yep. <laughs> it's always a challenge. I, absolutely, I, I you know I have I have had micromanaging challenges in the past, and uh, they are excellent learning experiences. You know, on you know you learn what to do and what what you don't want to do. What you don't want to do, yeah, right, yeah, very very true. Well, my daughter is in the entertainment business, as you know, and uh, mm -hmm. she was just on a seven week shoot in Nashville. And she said the one thing she learned is she doesn't like to go on tour with, with the troops now because when she went, you know, the team of seven or eight people that worked together very, very well in L.A. were all over each other's throats when they were together in seven weeks in the same hotel. You know, it was a much different experience. <laughs> and, that's, and that's very interesting. And I look at a lot of philanthropic organizations do a lot of board development and you want to plan for that transition and have that good governance. 
and you know you want to you know that things are going to change when new people come on or or you know other people drop off i did have uh, one mentor who was part of a wholesale buying group i was a member of and uh, his his uh, philosophy was a uh, a board needs to meet in the same configuration almost 10 times before it becomes a cohesive team. If it doesn't meet in those, in, in those same configurations, you are going to constantly run into to different challenges and obstacles. Right. And I joined a board during COVID and uh, talk about challenges. The board doesn't have any cohesiveness to it uh, because they haven't really been together in person or in a social setting. It's mm-hmm. always been on Zoom. And yeah. I mean, in the process, right before you, uh, I took the, the recording with you here today, I was working on onboarding procedures as uh, the board needs to start to bring on new board members and what do we need to do to incorporate them into the board, whether it's, you know, having their own mentor on the board, whether it's seeing all the minutes for the last five years, whatever it might be to get a feeling of what the board is like, you know, from mm-hmm. that standpoint. Very challenging right. time. I do a lot of consulting work in the area of board development, and uh, mm-hmm. probably the, the the weakest area of most nonprofits is the strength of their boards. It can be very true because boards get boards evolve based on the type of work that they're that they're looking to do. If they're looking to raise money, they will go after more fundraisers. If they're looking for you know activity processes they'll go over they'll go with people that have more time on their hands than necessarily money they the operative thing i think is to create that balance uh because you need both of those types of people you need the people that have the time and are willing to work on the detail and you need the people that are going to raise the significant funds that you're looking for and being your connectors so it's 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 incumbent upon the board leadership to realize that and uh, and maximize those opportunities. Right. Very, very true. We thank our sponsor, Hot Dog Business Growth. Hot Dog Business Growth has over 40 years of practical experience. We've developed best practices for the execution of ideas, professional growth, constructive communication, employee relations, sales strategies, including compensation, pricing, marketing, and much more, such as CEO and leadership counseling, both in the for-profit and non-profit sectors, customer service assessments and training, sales counseling for individuals, sales teams, sales management support, and pricing strategies. We focus on team synergy. Our leader, Joel Volk, has spent years building the type of team synergy that results in positive relationships and improved results. We have a team of 11 consultants, working in the profit and nonprofit world. As Joel says, hot dog, it's a wonderful life. You can find us at hotdogbizgrowth.com. That's hotdogbizgrowth.com. What else should we know about you in your business or your, uh, your personal lives that you can tell us? Well, at the moment, and this is, you, you mentioned about a uh, joining a board uh, during COVID. Uh, during COVID, uh, I actually started writing music with a uh, uh, my uh, song leading uh, or song song writing partner. Her name is uh, Kimberly Lee. Uh, she's a substitute teacher in the LA Unified School District, and uh, a marvelous singer, um, a bit of a jazz chanteuse. But uh, we started to meet weekly uh, during COVID, and. Uh, 
started writing one song, which became two songs, which became 11 songs. Wow. So we are, we are actually in the midst of recording an album. Uh, we're doing about uh, one and a half songs a, a month. Uh, so we've got a ways to go, but uh, it's been a, a wonderful experience. Um, when I was uh, younger, I was uh, you know, a, a song leader at Camp Hess Kramer and hadn't picked up the guitar before this in a, probably about uh, six or seven years. But uh, for the last uh, two plus years now, it's been a lot of fun. We're, we're actually starting to explore some open mic nights to try out you know, some of this material and uh, see where it can take us. Well, actually, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. You know. How did you get into music to begin with? Uh, it starts with my parents. I mean, the, cho the choice was uh, your sister started to play the guitar. You can either play the guitar with her or you can uh, play the piano. <laughs> and I took a couple of piano lessons and said, nah, this doesn't really excite me that much. But I started to enjoy the guitar and had a wonderful uh, guitar teacher. Uh, and that grew into a, uh, a song leading opportunity at the Wilshire Boulevard Temple Camps uh, that is still active to this day. Well, music has a lot of lot to do with people's lives, and people don't always realize how important it is, both in a positive way of keeping people going during difficult times, and then just the enjoyment of it all. You know, so I'm kind of a rock and roll buff and a classical music and a jazz fan all in the same. So it's a little, a little confusing I, I am to people, but uh, I still remember going to my first concert with my daughter. It uh, was Sheryl Crow uh, opening for the Rolling Stones. I love it. That's she was great. 10 years old and it was, uh, she loved music and, and has always loved music growing up that way, you know, with the classics and modern. My first concert was Peter, Paul and Mary at uh, the Open Air Universal Amphitheater. And if anybody can figure that out, they, they know how old I am now. Well, my first concert at the Open Air Universal City Amphitheater was Joni Mitchell, uh, yep. where they recorded the Miles of uh, uh, Isles, uh, whatever it was called, album way yeah. back then. You know, when we grew up, you know, we're spoiled because we I, I taught people around the country. We grew up in L.A. Uh, we both did. Uh, and like going to the Troubadour was a normal thing you do on a Saturday night. And it was nothing special. We didn't That's know right. it was special, you know. Mm -hmm. So yep. I mean, I, I saw I saw James Taylor and Carol Kane together in the seven, and who knew that fifty years later they'd be doing it again, you know? Yep. And and it was such an important music concept for people. That's right. I can I can remember uh, Elton John, uh, you know, at his his tenth anniversary at the Troubadour, right? Yeah, you know, which right. was always Doug Weston's deal. If you get famous, you got to come back here in ten years and and play a concert. And so, we would we would stand in line for hours to get in. <clears throat> Long lines around the block, and we didn't know better, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And music is a, is a is a really wonderful thing. I would I would consider you know your music tastes a lot like mine, which are very eclectic. You know, you can go from you know, from classical to rock and roll. I you know we've been playing a lot of uh, Billie Eilish these days. Uh, you know, it 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 matches uh, my writing partner's song voice very nicely. And uh, the messages are terrific. You know, they, she's got a, you know, a good message and, you know, it comes from humble beginnings, her and her brother. Right. Uh, but it's, you know, music is, you know, music is math, you know, and if you like, if you like music, you know, there's a good shot that you're going to like numbers too. That's right. That's very, very true. Yeah. You know, they, the, the hot thing right now is Wordle, you know, and, yeah. uh, and I'm thinking, 
Yeah, I'm not so good at English, but give me some math problems to do. I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can, I, you know, and, you know, I can, I can remember, you know, product numbers and product pricing from, you know, 25 years ago, you know, from companies that don't exist today, you know, and they just, those are just little things that kind of stick in your head and you can say, right. do you remember, you know, you remember when, but it has, it creates that basis for your, uh, for what you're going to do, you know, what you're doing today and how you can, how you can work with others and benefit. So as we come to the end of the, uh, the interview process, is there something I should have asked you that I forgot to do? I forgot to ask you about. I, I'm not sure we've covered a lot of ground in a lot of different directions. Uh, you know, it's, it's been a, a very enjoyable conversation. Yeah. And, you know, it's yeah. funny, you know, 22 sessions ago when I started this podcast, I had notes in front of me and all this stuff today. I'm just winging it. You know, seems to be going okay. <laughs> you know, it's 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 all good, and this has been a wonderful conversation. And and it's what's what makes it easy uh, for for you, Gary, is that you you know it's it's what you know. You yeah. know, you've, you've done it for so many years, and and you have some great experiences and and knowledge that you are imparting on on you know a, a vaster audience than you could ever have thought of. You know, even even three or five years ago, that uh, has created some some great opportunities. And for people that listen to this, uh, you know, and and understand how important philanthropy can be, uh, you know, whether it's personally or whether it's through your organization, uh, there are you know tremendous benefits that you can bring to everybody, and uh, you know, bring to your own employees bring to yourself and bring to the people that you're uh, contributing your time and efforts to. Very, very true. Well, thank you, Paul, for being part of the show. I appreciate it. We look forward to seeing you down the road. Absolutely. Thank you, Gary. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at painted rock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.